Amen. Well, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 13. So I've been studying this passage this week. Um, the question that has come into my mind is this, and this is the title of our study. You see it up there on the screen. Is the Lord alone enough? Is the Lord alone enough for your life? Imagine for just a second that maybe all of the, the blessings that are in your life have been taken away. Is the Lord alone enough for you? Is he enough? What if all of the dreams that you have for your life, all of the things that you hope to accomplish, what if that never comes to pass? Is the Lord alone enough for you? Is he enough for you? You know, we're living in some crazy days. What if persecution comes to the church? That's not a a far stretch for us to imagine, is it? Is the Lord alone enough for your life? Is he alone enough to satisfy you? Is he alone enough for you? Well, we're going to be in Jeremiah, as I've said. It's always kind of interesting when Troy asks me to teach or or one of the others to teach. It's like, man, what do I choose? Like, I've got the entire Bible to choose from. Like, what, what do you want me to say? Well, I really feel like the Lord has put these verses on my heart. But Jeremiah was ministering to... Uh, Judah, which was the southern Israeli kingdom, um, right up to their last days, and even into the Babylonian captivity. So he's ministering to them, and he has a message of repentance. He calls them to repent of their idolatry, to repent of their disobedience and rebellion against the Lord, and to come back uh, to the simplicity of relationship with him. And in our passage, in fact, the Lord, he's going to call back to a time that Israel was devoted to the Lord. He's going to call back to the beginning. And let's look at this here in verses 1 through 3. He's going to speak of Israel's devotion when they were young. Israel's devotion, the devotion of Israel's youth. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, When you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. They're coming right to the end of being a nation. The Lord is about to bring judgment upon them. They're about to go into captivity. And one of the first messages that he has for the prophet uh, Jeremiah to give to them is this, I remember you. I remember when you used to be faithful to me. I remember when you were devoted to me. He says here, I remember the kindness of your youth. There are other translations. If you have a different translation, it probably says something different. It might say the devotion of your youth or the the love of your youth, something along those lines. This is an interesting Hebrew word. Um, And actually, the most that it is used in the Bible is to speak of the Lord's love for humanity. It's oftentimes translated as loving kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord. It speaks more than just of a a kindness. It speaks more than just of a devotion. It encapsulates faithfulness and love and, and all of these things. That's how the Lord loves us. And the Lord says here, I remember Israel when you had that for me. I remember when you were devoted to me. I remember when you cared about me. I remember when you were faithful to me. I remember you. You were devoted and you were faithful. Now listen, for every follower of the Lord, this is the kind of love that the Lord is looking for. 
I believe wholeheartedly this is, this is the kind of love that the Lord wants us to have, a steadfast devotion, that it's the Lord first and foremost in our hearts. Uh, when Jesus was asked, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? Like, in other words, what's the best thing that I could ever do for the Lord? What did he say? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. In other words, love me with everything you have. Love me with all of you. You know, we just sang that song. I'm so blessed by it. Every ounce an offering, right? Every ounce broken here at your feet. All of me. Not holding anything back. The Lord says, Israel, you had this for me. I remember the kindness of your youth. I remember that devotion that you had when you first started walking with me. He goes on to say, I remember the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. He's saying, you were like a bride before me. You were like a bride before me. And, and when a bride is getting ready to be married, she's making herself beautiful. She's adorning herself. She's making sure that she's pure. She's excited about the relationship that she's about to share with her husband. And the Lord says, this is how you were with me, Israel. I remember the love of your betrothal. I remember when you went after me in the wilderness. This speaks of the time of, of the Exodus, right? When Israel left Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, we can look back at that time and we know okay, it wasn't, it wasn't all good at that time. There, were, there was disobedience. There were times when Israel fell. But if you look back, I, I really think that it was at that time when Israel was the most devoted to the Lord than they ever were after that. It was in those wilderness wanderings. And so the Lord is calling back to that. He says, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase, meaning he was set apart set apart to the Lord um, as holy, to be his special people. And the Lord was their protector. So he gives this picture of a beautiful relationship. You know, some commentators have called this section the honeymoon phase. You know, well, why is that? Well, a lot of times when a husband and wife get married, there's that excitement, and then the years set in, and the, and the kids, and all of these different things, and sometimes that love wanes a little bit. And this is exactly what we see happen here in verses 4 through 8. The Lord is going to detail Israel's rebellion. That though they may have started out well, they rebelled against the Lord. Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, where is the Lord? Who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. In verses 1 through 3, remember he says, I remember you. I remember how you were devoted. But in these verses, he's calling out their rebellion. Telling him, you've sinned against me. And he does this in three ways. In verses 4 and 5, uh, he tells us that Israel has become idolatrous. 
In verse 6, he tells us that they have forgotten the work of the Lord. And in verses 7 and 8, he says that they've defiled the land. They've become idolatrous, they've forgotten the work of the Lord, and they have defiled the land. Let's take a look at these things a little bit more closely. Verses 4 and 5, Israel has become idolatrous. Uh, We know, as you read through the Old Testament, it didn't take Israel very long to become idolatrous, right? Uh, Pretty much, there were some times in the wilderness wanderings, and then when they got into the land after Joshua died, they definitely uh, were given over to idols. And the Lord asks them here in verse 5, what did I do? Like, can you look back at our history together, and was I unfaithful to you in any way? Was I unfaithful? Um, Why would you turn away from me? What did I do that you would follow after other gods? Was I ever unjust? The Lord asks, was I ever unjust? He says in verse 5, they have followed after idols and have become idolaters. If you have a different translation, it probably says something different. The ESV says that they went after worthlessness and became worthless. The New American Standard Bible says they walked after emptiness and became empty. That word idle or empty or worthless, it's kind of hard to translate it. It literally means breath or vapor. Um, And the idea is that, well, we're about to come upon fall, right? And one of the first signs of fall, like, I love this. Like, you walk outside and it's cold and you breathe out and you what? You see your breath, right? But what happens? It's gone just like that. It's gone instantly. It's not, it's not good for anything anymore. It's there, and then it disappears. The Lord says, this is what idolatry is like. You have followed after idols. You followed after worthlessness. You followed after emptiness, and then you yourselves have become empty. It doesn't profit you. And now listen, the church is warned many times in the New Testament. Keep yourself from idolatry. Don't follow after idols. Don't, don't allow your heart um, to be overtaken by idols. We read this in 1 John 5, 21. He says very simply, little children, keep yourself from idols. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so it's not just that you're, you're slowly walking past idolatry. No, you're actually fleeing from it. You're running away from it. You don't want it to have any part of your life. And this is what we are encouraged to do. Now, when we think of idolatry, I think what comes to mind for a lot of us is like bowing down to a wooden statue or a molded image or, you know, in the wilderness, Aaron, uh, they threw all of their gold into the fire and he molded a calf and they bowed down and worshiped it. Like we think, we think of these things and, you know, we can go to different parts of the world. I went to Nepal last year where they just have shrines everywhere. They've got little idols everywhere that people do physically go and bow down to and burn incense to and that is idolatry. But I think that idolatry is so much more than that because it is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. An idol is anything that would take the place of the Lord in our hearts. That's what idolatry is. Anything that would take the place of the Lord. Anything that takes that seat of worship. If there's anything in your life that's more important to you than your walk with the Lord, than your love for the Lord, than your devotion to the Lord, this is idolatry. And it could come in many different forms come in many different forms. And you might ask, well, how could I, how can I know? Where do you spend your time? What do you spend most of your time doing? If you're like, well, you know, I, I watch about six hours of TV a day. It's not that much. Well, 
It could be that entertainment is an idol in your life. You can't go a day without it. Um, for other people, it could be a relationship. Man, I, I, I'm not going to be satisfied unless I'm married. For others, it might be, I'm not going to be satisfied unless I have kids. So it could be these things. It could be money. It could be pleasure. We could, we could fill in the blank with a whole host of different things. The matter remains the same. It's an issue of the heart. If there's something in your life that's taking the place of the Lord that becomes more important to you than the Lord himself, this is idolatry. And we're called to flee from these things. Ephesians 5.5, 5, Paul says this, This you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Paul says that fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, these things are idolatry. And so, listen, don't think that it's just bowing down to little wooden images. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Be careful. Why? Well, the Lord tells Israel, these things, they're worthless. They may take shape for a moment like you see your breath on a cold morning, but it's just going to dissipate. It's worthless, and you're going to become like that worthlessness. And so he says to them, what did I do to you, Israel? What did I do to you that you would follow after other gods? Was there any injustice in me? Is there ever a time where I wasn't faithful to you? Why would you turn your back on me like that? Verse 6, he goes on to tell them that they have forgotten his works. He says, neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Let us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. They're, they're not asking these things. They've completely forgotten that it was the Lord that delivered them from Egypt, that delivered them through this harsh wilderness, right? Um, they don't even care anymore. In verses 7 and 8, when they finally received the blessing, they've been brought through uh, the wilderness. It says that when they got into the land, they defiled it. They defiled the land with their abominations, with their idolatry, with their, uh, with their rebellion. And he calls out three groups of people here at the end of verse 8 um, who are, are being held responsible for this. And it's the priests, the rulers, and the prophets. We see it there beginning in verse 8. He says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. What's that? Those who should know the best. Those who should know of me the most, those who handle the word of God, they didn't know me. What a shame that those who would be entrusted with the word, the Lord would put such an accusation upon them as that you didn't even know me. You were close to it, but you didn't know it. You didn't, you didn't take it for yourself. This word know, it speaks of more than just an intellectual knowledge. It's more than just like, I know of this thing or I know about this thing. Um, this word is used uh, for when a man knows his wife. And so it's a, it's a deep knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It is an intimate knowledge. It's not surface level. And there is a deep personal experiential knowledge that the Lord wants each of his followers to experience. The knowledge of the Lord. He wants us to be walking in this. He wants us to know him. And of all people, the priests of the nation of Israel, they should have been the ones to know the Lord in this way because they handled the word of God. But listen, the New Testament tells us that we are now the priests. And I'm not speaking about 
you know, myself or, or Pastor Troy or, or anybody else on staff or who's in ministry, certainly we are, but he's speaking to the church. The church, we are the priests. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are his own special people. And for those of us who call on the name of the Lord, we of all people should know him. And he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him more than just surface level. He wants you to know him like you know your spouse. He wants you to know him like you would know your brother. That's, that's how the Lord wants you to know him, like you would know your best friend. That's the kind of knowledge that the Lord wants. You know, I've been married to Megan for 12 years, and when we first got married, I knew her, right? I, I knew her. Um, but man, compared to that knowledge that I have of her now, <laughs> I was like in elementary school, and now hopefully I'm in high school, and maybe, maybe a little later, my knowledge of Megan, I'll, I'll graduate college one day, right? Like there's, a, there's an ever-growing, ever-increasing, ever-deeper knowledge that I have of her and, and her with me, and this is exactly how it ought to be in our walk with the Lord, that we would know the Lord. The more that we walk with Him, the more that we're in the Word, the more that we pray, the more that we go to church, the more that we know who He is and experience Him and enjoy this personal, deep love loving fellowship with him, because that's the kind of relationship that the Lord wants to have with us. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you personally. He says, my priests, they didn't know me. Do you know him? Now, I'm not asking if you're saved or not. You know, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, course you're saved, but do you know him? Do you have that deep knowledge? Do you know him like you know your spouse? Do you know him like you know your best friend? And if you're like, I don't think I do. I don't think I have that, that kind of a deep relationship with the Lord. Why not? What's stopping you? What's, what is it that's hindering you? You have everything that you need. The Lord said in uh, 2 Peter that he's given us everything that we need in regards to life and godliness. You have everything that you need right now, today, to live an abundant life before the Lord, to live a victorious life before the Lord, and to really, truly know him. What's, what's getting in the way? Is there idolatry in your heart? Is there a sin that you've been harboring that's, that's preventing you? And if there is, listen, I think that the, it's clear. It's a word from the Lord. It's time to repent and be done with lesser things. Be done with lesser things. The priests, he says, they didn't know me. The rulers transgressed him. It says these government leaders there in verse 8, they rebelled. And the prophets prophesied not by the Lord, but by Baal. So you see the progression here. They started out as being young and in love verses 1 through 3, but eventually they started chasing after other lovers. They forgot the work of the Lord. They defiled the good blessing and inheritance that he had promised them. And you know what's interesting? It's like the Lord is saying here, you were devoted to me in your youth before you even got the blessing. You were devoted to me in the youth when you were, when you were wandering in the wilderness. And then when you finally get the blessing, you finally get into the land, that's when you defile it. 
That's when you forsake me. That's when you leave me. When you received the blessing, you forsook me. And I think that we have a tendency, just, just as people, to be content and satisfied with the blessing rather than to be content and satisfied in the Lord himself. You know, I think sometimes our relationship with the Lord becomes more about what I can get from him than the fact that I actually get him. Do you see the distinction? It's like, it's like in, in marriage, right? In my, my marriage with Megan. What a horrible marriage it would be if I was like, yeah, you know, I love Megan. She cooks and she cleans for me and um, she, she does all of the meals and it's all about what she can do for me. But, you know, that's it. That would be t- terrible. You guys would be like, I think you guys need some serious counseling. You should like actually love her and have a real relationship with her. That's not a relationship. That's all just selfishness. Listen, we get to enjoy real fellowship with the Lord, real communion with the Lord. We get to know Him. We get to know Him. The Lord wants us to know Him. It's not about just what we can get from Him. At the end of last year, Megan and I, we bought a puppy. His name is Watson, and he's a beagle mix. And he is the cutest little dog, like one of the cutest little things I've ever seen in my life. No joke. Totally adorable. And he's our second dog. We have another dog named Pippin. He's a Border Collie mix. And Pippin was just, he's brilliant. Like the smartest dog that you've ever seen in your life. We literally, and this is not an exaggeration, he was six weeks old when we got him. We had him sitting and staying within a day. He was brilliant. Watson has humbled us. <laughs> our new puppy. He has completely humbled us because it's like, I was thinking, man, we've got this dog ownership thing down. Like, we're totally good at training him. Like, look at Pippin. He's so good. And then we get Watson. He's, it's been almost a year. He's like still barely sitting. I'm like, I don't even think I know what a dog is anymore. Like, this is just, it's so hard. So anyway, Watson, he's obsessed with food. And um, like, literally crazed for food. You know, you, you can't leave anything out. I cannot set my food on the table and think it's going to be safe. <laughs> uh, he will get it. He will get his little snout up there and start licking it. Like, no matter how many times I scold him, um, he's going to get it. I don't know why he doesn't get it, but he doesn't. There are times when I'm eating my breakfast or eating dinner, and I'm sitting at the table, and he just comes up like, so cute so sweet, and he just sits there, and he, like, stares at me, and he's got, like, the worst puppy dog eyes, and then even just, like, two days ago, he, he does this. He put his little paws up on my lap, and he's, like, getting close to me, and he's snuggling in, but I'm not deceived. You know why? Because as he's doing this, he's craning his neck toward my food, like, try, trying to get my food, and I'm like, you little, like, I'm not deceived by you. I see what you're doing, you're just trying to get my food. You're, you're getting close to me. You're pretending to be nice. You're pretending to be sweet. But all you want is my food. All you want is what you can get from me. I think you guys see where I'm going with this. Man, we need to be careful that this is not how we approach our relationship with the Lord. Listen, as we walk with the Lord, it's not about the blessing. It's not about the blessing. 
It's not about the Lord fulfilling our wildest hopes and dreams. It's, it's not about that. We get the Lord. We get relationship with him. We get to know the King of Kings. We get to have fellowship with him. And when Watson, who's just, seriously, he's just a silly dog. It's like when he does this to me, a part of me is almost like offended. Like, how dare you do something like that to me? Like, you're, you're, you're just a, tricking me, like trying to get me to think that you're being sweet, but then you're getting my food. Like, get away from me, like almost offended. But, you know, he's just a dog. How much more keenly must the Lord feel that when that's how we approach him? When we're not, we're not, coming to pray with him to have fellowship. We're coming to pray with him because we want the thing. We're not coming to church because we want to know Jesus deeper. We're coming with him to him um, as, as penance or something like that. We want the blessing. But listen, as somebody else has put it, we shouldn't come to the Lord just wanting what he can give us from his hand. We should come and behold the beauty of his face. Come and behold him. Come and know him. Don't approach your relationship with the Lord like my silly dog approaches his relationship with me. <laughs> that's, that's offensive. We get to know the Lord. And so when Israel, they got the blessing, they got the thing, they came into the land. They received the inheritance. And it wasn't enough. And when that took place, they turned their hearts away from following the Lord. Now listen, of course the Lord wants to bless us. I'm not, I'm not up here saying that. I think that the Lord wants to bless us. And I think that the Lord, um, he, he certainly wants us to be walking in those things that he's created for. So don't, don't misunderstand me, but don't let those things be the thing. You know what I'm saying? Don't let those things be the it in your life. That's like, if I don't get this thing, then I'm just going to become a bitter, unsatisfied person. No, you get the Lord. The King of Kings who said, I will give you the knowledge of me. You can have this relationship with me. I can be close to you as close as your wife, as close as your husband, as close as your brother or best friend. That's that's the kind of relationship that the Lord desires from each of us. So Israel, they forsook the Lord. They started out right. They became idolatrous. They forsook the Lord. And in verses 9 through 13, the Lord brings a charge against Israel. He says, Therefore, because of these things, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. This is a legal term. It's like the Lord is saying, I'm filing a lawsuit and I'm taking you to court. Verse 10, for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has ever been such a thing. It's like he's saying, look to the east. Cyprus was on the east. Look to the west. Kedar was on the west. I might have those two mixed up, but you get the point. Look to the east and the west. Look and see if there's ever been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. He's saying, look at the Gentile lands. Look at these people who are following after idols, who are following after a lie. Look to the east and to the west. They're more committed to a lie 
then the nation of Israel was committed to the true king. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Verse 12, be astonished, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, be astonished, be dismayed, be horribly afraid. Look at this. Stand, stand back in awe, and not awe like a good thing. Be shocked. My people have committed two evils. The first evil, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. This is often how the Lord refers to himself in Scripture. You go read both Old Testament and New Testament. The fountain of living waters. Water is where we get life from, right? He says, I am that. I am that fountain. I will give you true life. Just a couple verses for you guys to jot down. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but a couple places the Lord um, carries this idea along. Isaiah 55, 1, he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. John 4, 13 through 14, Jesus speaking with the woman at the well. She's, She's getting water from the well, and he says, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then a few chapters later in John, he says, if anyone thirsts, this is John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We get to the very end of the book, Revelation 21.6, the end of the Lord's revelation. And he says this, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He says, I will give this. And what is the fountain? It's himself. This is what it says here in Jeremiah. He says, I am the fountain of living waters. Over and over the Lord says, if you're thirsty, come to me. And this isn't like in a physical sense, this is a spiritual sense. If you're dissatisfied in this life, if you have a thirst in your soul, if you're spiritually parched, come to me. Come and drink of me. Be satisfied in me. If you're thirsty and you drink of me, you will thirst no more. I will fill that need in your life. He goes on to say in other places, and if you're hungry, that's good because I'm the bread and you can eat of me too. And you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. If you're weary, if you're tired, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. But it's always the Lord. It's the Lord himself who provides this for us. Every time he says, I will do this. I am the water. I'm the bread. I will provide you with the rest. He says, my people, they've forsaken me the one who could really, truly satisfy. The one who could really, truly give them that desire that they feel in their souls. He says, they've forsaken me. And the second evil, he says, and they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What a crazy thing. The Lord is saying, I'm I'm this fountain, or I'm this spring, right? I'm this spring of of living waters, but instead my people have 
have dug their own cisterns, and they're broken cisterns. They don't, they don't even hold any water. You know, during this time, spring water, like, that's what you wanted, right? <laughs> it, it was good if you lived by a spring. Uh, why? Well, because it was constant. Um, it was reliable. It wasn't dependent upon weather or rain or anything like that. It was just going to gush forth. Like, that is what you wanted. Um, but there were those who did need to dig cisterns um, in ancient Israel. Like, you know, I went to Israel in 2007 and um, went to a place called Masada, which is kind of perched on the top of this hill. It's in southern Israel. And on this hill, they dug a bunch of cisterns. And what, what you do when you dig a cistern, it's not a small thing. It's like a huge room. And they plaster it with lime. And uh, they try to make it so that the water can stay within this reservoir, Right. But the thing about cisterns is they weren't very good for a number of reasons. First of all, if it didn't crack, it was bad water. Like, it didn't taste good. Who wants to just drink water that's just been sitting there and roasting all day? <laughs> like, I don't think that any of us are like, mm, that, yeah, put that on my table after dinner. Like, that's what I want. Like, you don't want bad, gross, stagnant water. It didn't taste good. It was earthy. It was brackish. It wasn't good. It was unreliable. If it didn't rain, you were going to be in trouble. But you know what happened a lot of times? They cracked. They cracked and couldn't hold any water anymore. Could you imagine how frustrating that would be? To spend the time, like, and they didn't have backhoes or tractors or anything like that. Um, they, they were like with sticks and shovels digging out these cisterns. How frustrating would it be to put all of that work, devoting all of your time into this cistern, and then in the end, it just, it's cracked, and it's not holding any water. Any of you guys ever had a full, hard day of work, and it, then at the end, for some reason, like, you lose all of your work, or it was worthless? What does that feel like? Oh, it's the worst feeling in the world, right? A number of years ago, um, it was actually when Megan and I were living in New Mexico, and uh, I had a water leak. We got our water bill one time, and it was like five or six hundred dollars, and we were like, what? <laughs> like, there's no way that we used that much water. It's just the two of us, right? And so we had a water leak, and um, I had a, knew some plumbers, and I had them come out to our house, and um, he tells me, he was trying to help me out. He was like, you know, you can do some of the labor, so that way um, we don't have to charge you as much. And so he's like, so what you want to do is you want to find where the leak is. So it's somewhere in between your water line or your, your um, meter and the house. And so just start at your house and then dig out until you find the leak. And I was like, okay. So I take days off of work. And I work for literally, I think it was two or three straight days digging four feet down into the hard earth, um, trying to find this water line. And uh, I get all the way across my, my yard. Literally, it looked like a backhoe came in there and just dug it out. Like, so exhausted, so tired, didn't find the leak. And then finally, I realized I didn't get all the way up to the front of my house. I left about a foot. And sure enough, I go and I dig it out, find the leak right away. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It felt horrible. <laughs> like, if anything, I got a good workout, right? I mean, I guess I can look at it that way. It was just the worst feeling in the world. Digging, it's hard work. And to dig a cistern and have it not work in the end would be so frustrating. And that is what the Lord says. This is what it's like 
when you chase after other things. This is what it's like when you try to find satisfaction in this life outside of me. This is what it's like when you place all of your hope in another person or another thing or your dreams or anything like that. That must be placed in me because I'm the fountain of living waters. That's my place. I will satisfy you. I will fill you. You You don't need to go outside of me. I want to walk in the fullness of what the Lord has for me. I don't want to substitute. I don't want to counterfeit. I don't want something self-made that's not going to work in the end anyway. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who can satisfy us who can fill us, who can quench the thirst of our souls. We should never look outside of the Lord. The Lord's right here. He's saying, I'm, I'm the fountain. Just drink of me. Drink deeply. You notice how the Lord has just completely opened himself up to us. He says, drink deeply. Take it. You can have it. You don't need to dig a cistern. There's a spring right here. You can drink freely. Drink deeply. And anything other than that is just, it's a substitute. It's bad water. Not only that, but you don't even get the bad water in the end. It's, it's got a crack. It's got a crack. The Lord has said, I want to satisfy you. Psalm 1611. Jason mentioned this during worship, and Troy actually mentioned it a few weeks ago. He says, you will show me the path of life In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, in the presence of the Lord, is when we find the fullness of joy. Psalm 145, 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. How much effort does it take of the Lord to satisfy us? He says, here you go. Here's my open hand, take of it drink. Drink deeply. You can have it. I want to be that for you. You don't need to go to other things. Drink of me. Be satisfied in me. Is the Lord alone enough for you? Is he enough? I don't want any of us to be bitter people because we've been dissatisfied with this life. If you're looking to find life in this life, you will be dissatisfied. It's only the Lord. It's only the Lord who can truly satisfy. Has familiarity with the Lord or the things of the Lord caused you to become complacent in your walk with Him? You know, the Lord looked back and He said, I remember you when you were young. I remember the devotion, the kindness, the loving kindness of your youth. I remember that time when you were like a bride adorned for me. How many of us could look back at our walk with the Lord and say, man, when I first got saved, I was on fire for the Lord. I was walking with the Lord. I was fully devoted. I was sharing my faith. And now a year has passed, two years, 10 years have passed, and that zeal and that vigor has has just faded. Listen, come back to the simplicity of a relationship with the Lord. Come back to that simplicity where it's just you and Jesus. In Revelation chapter 2, the Lord speaks to the church of Ephesus This is a very famous, well-known passage. You can go read it later. It's the beginning of Revelation chapter 2. But he says, I know you, and I know your works, and I, I know that you're trying really hard. I see all of these good things that you're doing, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. 
Therefore, repent and do the first works, he says. Repent. If there's anything in your life that's taken the place of the Lord, if there's been anything in your life that that's your seat of worship, where it's a, it's a, it could be a person, it could be a pleasure, it could be a thing, I, I don't know. Repent. Go back to that, that place. Go back to that time where you remember your youth in the Lord, where you're devoted Because here's the thing, the Lord wants to fill us. He wants us to know Him. He wants to satisfy us. And and not only that, He wants to know us. He wants this relationship. And it's not about what He gives us. It's not about the blessing. It's about Him and Him alone. We get to know Jesus. We get to walk with the Lord. How amazing. Let's make sure that we each are full, taking full advantage of this. He says, here you go. Drink deeply. Be satisfied in me. And Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would be satisfied in you alone, that we wouldn't look to these outside things. Lord, you are the fountain of living waters. You've provided this, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we each would just come to a fuller and richer and deep knowledge of you. Lord, that we would continually grow in you. And Lord, if there's any idols, idolatry in our heart, Lord, I pray that you would just root that out even now, even as we're praying, Lord, that you would be the foremost in our lives.